Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Tristan Grotfett Hayes, Lecture in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. His new book, Meaning and Metaphysical Necessity, is just out from Routledge. In 1980, the philosopher and logician Saul Kripke published a small but hugely influential book, Naming and Necessity, in which he argued that some claims that we discover empirically, that is, a posteriori, to be true, are also necessarily true. True not just in our world, but in any possible world in which the objects or kinds referred to by the words in the sentence exist. In his new book, Grotfett revisits this concept of the necessary a posteriori. He uses a method of factorization to explain the sort of a priori philosophical analysis that can give us insight into modal status, but in contrast to Kripke, he defends a neo-Fragian theory of meaning with an internal use component. He also considers the nature of metaphysical necessity itself, although he ends up being a skeptic about strong metaphysical necessity. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Tristan Grotfeld Hayes. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Uh, this should be a very fun interview um, about meaning and metaphysical necessity. Um, which I think for a lot of our listeners will bring them to mind, of course, of, of Kripke's book, Naming a Necessity. So I don't know if it's quite Naming a Necessity Redux, but uh, certainly a number of the main themes here are Oh, yeah, it's problems related. from Kripke. Absolutely, yeah. So before we get into the book itself um, and the thickets of, of modality and, and meaning, uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be a philosopher and then how you came to the topics that interest you and, you know, that led to the writing of the book. Yeah, well, um, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. I, I, uh, I got into philosophy. Um, I, start, I went to, I guess, in high school, I, I had, I mean, growing up, I thought philosophically, definitely, without without maybe realizing that um and i i had i had sort of philosophically relevant interests but i liked computer programming but then i also read i I mean my i didn't have a lot of exposure to the kind of philosophy i like most now but i would read things like freud and spook myself and things like that and then then i went to um i went to uni and started doing a bit of computer programming there thinking that that's the direction i was going to go in um but I took electives in philosophy and 
kind of fell in love with it. And especially when I did a logic class, I found that some of the kind of, some of what attracted me to programming, uh, the sort of feeling of things clicking, it was there in a very pure form in logic. And uh, the more, I, I guess, uh, I guess I just sort of, it was a bit of a dark night of the soul. And then I realized that I, sh- I should just major in, in philosophy and then and went, went that way. Um, then uh, did a did a PhD and um, I sort of sort of stayed at the at the University of Sydney all the way through and and did this PhD and then I kind of hit a wall with that um, when I was trying to finish the thesis had had like a little bit of a a kind of breakdown I suppose and had to do other things for a while like got a, a couple of menial jobs and pursued other things in the, the arts like music and stand up comedy and things and then was able to finish my thesis just off my own, um, you know, just off my own bat, not, not with the stipend or anything. And then, then I, I was able to start teaching casually uh, at the University of Sydney and um, that, that, that took me here to, to Melbourne. And so, and with the book, the book project is um, a long running sort of obsession. Like I wrote, I wrote about these topics for my, for my PhD thesis, um, and the book really—I mean, it came from reading Saul Kripke's *Naming and Necessity*. Really, I mean, it was clear that this was a central work in analytic philosophy, and I read it, and I had this experience of thinking that it was so great, so right about things, but I didn't go. All, a lot of its tendencies seemed wrong to me, and so I, I noticed people who had sort of very little sympathy for it. And I thought they just weren't getting certain definite things that Kripke had noticed and drawn attention to, that the sort of the naysayers just weren't quite getting some of that. And then on the other hand, you have people who are fully embracing it along with, the, um, along with I guess, some of the drawing certain methodological morals from it about how to do metaphysics or how we should think about metaphysics or essences and things like that and certain morals from it. Um, in the philosophy of language, which I think were wrong, like the, the the trend towards millionism is something that came out, and I thought that's wrong. But there's there's a lot of there's there are some core insights there as well. So it's it's sort of a, if you like, it's a project of sorting through, and trying to trying to clarify what is really great and true in 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 naming and necessity, and to take that further while avoiding what I thought were the the wrong tendencies. Okay, well, that's that's perfect then. Um, so, could you? I mean, I think I think many of the listeners will be you know roughly familiar with 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 Kripke's work um, with naming necessity, but be a good idea, I think, to refresh. You know, what are the particular aspects that you want that you um, you focus on in the book? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the cent- the central topic is just this idea of uh, necessity versus contingency um, as applied to truths about the world. So the idea is that you've got there's a bunch of stuff that's true <laughs> about the world. Um, some of those true things are necessarily true in the sense that they could not have been otherwise, that no matter how the world had turned out, these things would have been true. These are the necessary truths. And then the rest are contingent truths. They're the ones which could have been otherwise, that 
or if you like, they are otherwise in other possible worlds. And uh, that's the topic. It's about that distinction. How do we understand it? And how do we tell the difference in particular cases? How, how do you know if a truth is necessary as opposed to contingent? Um, and so Kripke, I mean, he, he drew attention to the, he clarified these no, this notion of necessity versus contingency. So we can get into examples to, to give more of a flavor of how, how this notion works. But um, broadly speaking, I, my idea is that, well, we, we tell the difference between necessary and contingent truths in part uh, by reflecting on the meanings of the, the expressions involved. Um, so the, this is, there were earlier, earlier ideas about how necessity worked and um, it was by, by many people in the 20th century kind of taken for granted that the necessary truths are the, are the ones that are true in virtue of meaning or analytic or true in virtue of the meanings of the, the terms involved. And, that doesn't look right anymore if you accept what Kripke says, but I think there's still um, there's it's there's still an important factor in our knowledge of well this is not just true it's necessarily true. Um, I want to maintain that there's a key factor there which is reflecting on the meanings of the terms, and that's that's how that is a factor that enables us to to see that a necessary truth is is necessary rather than contingent. And so, in, so part of what I have to do to make that case is to sort of analyse the concept of necessity and find that factor and isolate that factor. And then the second thing I have to do to, to um, carry out this, you know, to sort of make good on this idea is to make a case that that factor really is uh, semantic, really is about the meanings of expressions. And that sends me off into the philosophy of language um, developing a bunch of ideas there. And then finally, once I've sort of put this package of views together, I consider uh, a threat to the whole package um, coming from what I call strongly metaphysical modality. The idea is that there are certain kinds of cases where you might think this is a necessary truth uh, and or, or, or not a necessary truth. And in some of these cases, um, it's not clear that my account or other accounts um, that are relevantly similar can handle them. Um, so difficult cases, maybe one which jumps out when you're thinking about these things is the case of, uh, is it possible, is, are zombies possible? Is it possible to have um, physical things just like us, but not conscious? In some areas like this, it's um, some of my ideas that I was having seem to break down. And this has happened to other people as well, like David Chalmers. And there's a question about what you do with these tricky cases. Do you just try to um, do you just try to downplay them and say, "Well, look, it's not really clear that they are genuine cases." That was sort of my attitude, and that's what I find in people like Chalmers. But over time, I started to think that that really wasn't wasn't going to be good enough. Um, and certain work by other people, um, like Gideon Rosen and Antonella Malozzi made me realize that, no, we should realize that there are these different notions, the strongly metaphysical modal notions, and maybe they're actually what Kripke had all along. And what I'm saying, my story is not, is not going to address those difficult cases where those notions, um, it's not clear how they are to be applied. And so at the, at the end of the book, I, I developed this skeptical uh, 
um, approach to what I call strongly metaphysical modality. And I, I'm, uh, I have to try to articulate a way of being skeptical about it while still getting the idea. And so the idea is very roughly something like it's, it's built into these strongly metaphysical notions that, that they're supposed to be especially important or fundamental in a certain way, which I think no notions are or can be. Um, and so well, let the, me, yeah, yes. let me, let me, you've kind of gone into like giving us a very quick view of the, the entire book, but I, so I want to, I want to get into, you know, the different steps that you take, um, uh, you know, so that we can kind of go full circle and get to the important question of, of this, you know, strong metaphysical necessity. Um, but before we, so let's, you know, you, sh um, uh, maybe give us a, I think it'd be good, first of all, to give us an example of a type of a claim that you, you have in mind, right? So it's, you know, that, that would be good so that we have something to, to work with. Um, but in terms of your methodology to approaching, you know, what is, you know, how do we account for the necessity of certain claims? And, and we'll have one on the table in a moment. Um, even though they are a posteriori, right? They're, they're, you know, they're truths that are necessary and they're discoverable. You know, we know them once we've looked at the world, not, not simply by, uh, you know, analytically reflecting on their meanings. Um, so the, the, you call the approach this, you know, this factorization approach. Um, so can you explain what that factorization approach is? Um, and how it's how it does the work what sort of work it does for you yeah yeah great yeah yeah so yeah rewinding completely so let's let's forget about the strongly metaphysical stuff for a moment i, I always get uh tied up in knots trying to talk about that so yeah that that forgetting about that back to the beginning there's there's this um so a central uh, perhaps a very clear kind of example of um one of these necessary truths which you can't know just by thinking about it. So as you say, it's, if they're not, the idea is they're necessary, but they're not a priori. You can't know that they're true just by thinking about it. And that was, that was a surprise. And that was something that Kripke convinced a lot of people of that there are such cases, necessary empirical truths or necessary a posteriori truths. So perhaps a very central and I think relatively clear example or kind of example is identity statements like Eminem um, is Marshall Mathers or Clark Kent is Superman, assuming the fiction, or Hesperus is Phosphorus. So there's this planet Venus which gets seen in the morning and in the evening and in those different times it gets called Hesperus and Phosphorus. And so you might not know that Hesperus is Phosphorus, um, that those are the same planet. Um, and so the thought is, well, that's not a priori. That's an a posteriori thing. Thing. Um, it's a. It's a. It's an astronomical discovery um, that Hesperus is phosphorus. Um, I think the Babylonians might have discovered it, or the ancient Greeks, or, or I think the ancient Greeks didn't know it for a time. And you know, it was a significant discovery. And Kripke argued that, well, although it's not a priori, it's a posteriori. It is necessarily true, um, given that it given that Hesperus is in fact phosphorus, well, it couldn't have failed to be. Um, 
Now, there's one, you might worry, well, it could have failed to exist. There might not have been Venus at all. Um, and so to get around that, you can say, well, consider the statement that if Hesperus exists, then Hesperus is phosphorus. And it seems to be the case that given that that's actually true, it couldn't have been otherwise. Um, you can't talk about, it doesn't, it sort of doesn't make sense, I want to say. And I think that gives us a clue. Uh, it doesn't make sense to, to talk about a scenario. I mean, if you are holding it to be true that Hesperus is in fact phosphorus, it doesn't make sense anymore to say, well, what if Hesperus had failed to be phosphorus? Because, well, you're just talking about the same thing twice over by your own lights. So that's not going to make sense. Um, so it's necessarily true. So that's sort of the, that's the sort of, a first bit of data. There is this necessary a posteriori truth. Um, and I guess I should say that this kind of example and then other examples that are a bit more mm, inspirational to philosophers, like there are cases like, well, water is H2O is another case that was put forward. And I think that one gets gets the imagination going a bit philosophically because it's sort of, it's a it's the hidden under, truth about the underlying nature of water and yet it's a necessary truth that was discovered empirically. And I think philosophers can get excited about that and they, they think, well, maybe there's sort of cases like that, but as it were, more philosophical ones where there are these necessary truths, the kind of thing that philosophy should be interested in and yet they're, they're empirical. Um, and so, you know, this, this has gotten a lot of people excited and I think a lot of people have sort of just given up on the idea that there's anything a priori about necessity at all in general. Um, and that, that's, that's something I want to push back on. So going back to the Hesperus is phosphorus case, um, one thing I think is notable about that, and this isn't me noticing it, Kripke pointed this out, it does seem to be the case that you, you can know a priori that if it's true, then it's necessarily true. So you can't know just that it's necessarily true a priori because it's, it's an empirical discovery that it's even true. But you can, in advance, figure out just by thinking about it that if it's true, this claim that Hesperus is phosphorus, then it's necessarily true. Okay, so that, that looks promising. You could say, well, that's the factor. With all necessary truths, we know a priori, we can know a priori that they're, that they're necessarily true if true at all. And then the other factor is just, is it actually true or not? Um, so let, let me let me stop and see if that, I mean, that's not actually going to work. So then I need to get to a workaround for why that doesn't work. But um, okay. how's is that? It just, right, right. Um, so, I mean, I, I suppose, are there, is it just identity statements that you're worried about? Well, I mean... Yeah, so I pick that one as perhaps one of the clearer examples of a necessary a posteriori truth, um, but pretty much all the ones Kripke put forward, insofar as you go along with them, they seem to have this character that, well, you can't know they're necessarily true just by thinking about it, but you can know that, that they're necessarily true if they're true at all. So this would also hold for um, water is H2O if you go along with the idea that it's necessary a posteriori in the first place and the other cases, um, other cases like, uh, um, 
cats are animals. So given that, so Kripke argues and, and following Putnam that it's actually not a priori that cats are animals, we could be really surprised and discover that they're cleverly disguised robots or demons, as Kripke puts it, less naturalistically. Um, but given that they are in fact cats, uh, they're necessarily cats. You can't have non-animal cats. Uh, part of what it is to be a cat is to be an animal. Um, and so for all of these examples you find in Kripke, it seems to still be the case that, well, you can figure out in advance that if they're true, they're necessarily true. Um, and, and I would say that when we do that, we're, we're, we're reflecting on the meanings of these statements to, to figure that out. And so I could sort of, that would be great if that worked for all cases, but there are, the, there are these tricky cases for which it, it doesn't work, which you can sort of build out of these simpler cases. Um, so perhaps we could try one of those. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to, you know, go into a bit about your, you know, I mean, so the the point of the factorization is to sort of isolate, you know, some parts of it that we know that we can figure out a priori from parts that are not knowable a priori. Um and I, I suppose, um, you know, we, we can't know, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just fleshing that out in, in more or less your terms. <laughs> you know, we, there are certain things we can't know, you know, we, if we, uh, you know, if certain things are, are turn out to be true, uh, then, and, and that we can't know a priori, but once we've sort of decided that they are, then we can jump to or you might not put it that way, but just sort of see, perceive, well, then it couldn't be otherwise, right? And that's the, that's the a priori, that's the necessity part. Yeah, that's the, that's the a priori factor in how we know they're necessary. But the thing is, yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the tricky thing is that the, that sort of quite nice thing that I think is true and can be said about these cases, like, we can figure out that if they're true, they're necessarily true. If you just vary them slightly, uh, that breaks down. So, um, so take Hesperus is phosphorus. Well, instead, if you take a disjunction, either Hesperus is phosphorus or um, my cup is sitting on the table here. Um, so the, the problem with this is that that's necessarily true and but, but for all you know, a priori, it could be the second bit. Like, so it's a, it's a disjunction of a necessary truth with a contingent claim um, about my cup being on the table. And so with that one, um, if you think about it, it, it's just as necessarily true as Hesperus is phosphorus because that, that first bit before the or makes the whole thing true. So it is true that Hesperus is phosphorus or my cup is on the table. That's true whether or not my cup is on the table. And so that's necessarily true. But if you don't know either of these things about whether Hesperus is phosphorus or whether my cup's on the table, you, you couldn't tell. You can't, you're not in a position with that statement to say, oh, well, look, if this is true, it's got to be necessarily true. Because for all I know a priori, it could be the second bit about the cup just making it true. And in that case, it's contingently true. Uh, uh. So this this... This is sort of an entry point for something I think is a bit more 
distinctive. And so my, my core, I guess the a core idea here is that, well, in that case, there still is a claim where we can know that if this claim is true, then that claim is necessarily true. It's just not the same one. So in the first case with Hesperus's phosphorus, it's like, that claim decides the matter of whether it is necessary or not. So we could say, well, there's the decider, P, and that's Hesperus's phosphorus. I know that if that's true, then Hesperus's phosphorus is necessarily true. So it's deciding the truth of that claim decides its own necessity. And that's a special case. But And then there's this breakdown with the disjunction. But it still has a decider. It's just not its own decider. So I can't know that that's necessary if true. But I can know, a priori, that if Hesperus is phosphorus, then that disjunction, Hesperus is phosphorus, or my cup is on the table, is necessarily true. So it's just, it's not the same claim twice over. If this is true, it's necessarily true. The first thing has to be a different claim, just the first bit. Like if Hesperus is phosphorus, then this disjunction with the, the or in the middle is necessarily true. And that still shows the a priori factor. So, so you've just kind of slipped in a little bit of your, you know, I guess I, what I think of is technically your technical vocabulary, um, this idea of a decider or, or as you put it, a, a counterfactual decider or, um, the, the invariance framework. Um, and so maybe we should talk about that part of your approach. So you, you, another technical notion you, you introduce, is the idea of a counterfactual scenario description, right? And then, uh, and then the counterfactual deciders, and then of course deciding which are the genuine counterfactual scenario descriptions. Um, so maybe you can, you know, tell us, you know, what what is this framework that you're using to analyze the notion of ne- the necessity? Yeah, good. So I mean the it. To sort of the reason why I start talking about things like that counterfactual scenario descriptions, you might think I could just stay at this level of saying, "Well, look, we can always find a claim where if that's true, then you can see a priori that then this other claim is necessarily true, and that's what we're doing when we learn that things are necessarily true." But um, problem is that kind of it leaves it leaves the what's actually going on. What is that factor? It leaves it in a kind of black box. Um, I'm just saying, well, it's a priori. And uh, I mean, one issue with what I've been saying is that, of course, there's going to be a claim that if that's true, then the claim you're interested in is necessarily true because you could just take the claim that the claim you're interested in is necessarily true. So that's like a trivial decider, if you like. So what I, what I was saying before, in a sense, it's trivial because, well, of course there is a claim where if it's true, you know, you can know that if it's true, then that disjunction is necessarily true. Just take the claim that that's, that disjunction is necessarily true. And that's sort of my idea is that it's not that that we start with. We start on that the sort of non-modal basis of just the simple claim that Hesperus is in fact phosphorus. And that's sort of the real decider. We don't, um, but, but because you could nominate as the decider just the end result that this disjunction is necessarily true that that's one indication that i I need to say more um 
another indication is that there are disjunctions just like the one I was talking about with Hesperus is Phosphorus, except the other bit is an a priori truth. And then it's sort of like it should. Then you, the trouble is you've got other a priori knowledge getting in there about mathematics or something, and that's not part of how we get to the modal bit of, of this is necessary. So there's a need to, uh, to, to sort of describe what's actually going on in this factor, the a, the a priori factor in our, in our knowledge of necessity. And so what I try to do is say, well, one of the things that, that Kripke's work sort of reveals is that we have these two different modes, if you like, of describing possibilities. That's one of the key lessons is that, well, you can describe a scenario as actual. You could say, well, could it actually be that blah, blah, blah? Could cats actually be animals? Um, could this actually be the case? And then there's this other mode we go into, which is describing counterfactual scenario descriptions. Uh, sorry, just d- describing counterfactual scenarios. Um, and so that, that's sort of characterized by subjunctive language. Well, could it have been that? Could this have been the case? And I think one thing that that you start to see once you look at these examples is that we, as it were, we observe different rules in the two kinds of cases. Like uh, we, what what we take to actually be true um, constrains w- what we say when we describe counterfactual scenario descriptions. So we say things like, "Well, maybe Hesperus isn't phosphorus, but given that it is, uh, then." It couldn't have been otherwise. So what we take to actually be true constrains which counterfactual scenarios we can produce. Um, and so that that's the core idea that that, that I that I use to describe the factor. And it, what I just said might sound funny because I said what we take to be true constrains this, the, the descriptions we can produce. I, of course, I don't mean we become unable to say certain things, but uh, it's that whatever we say, um, we can't give certain, certain descriptions are not going to be genuine counterfactual scenario descriptions. So I can say, well, look, I grant that Hesperus is phosphorus, but what if it had failed to be? Um, what if Hesperus had, had, had been distinct from phosphorus and moved away from it and then back towards it? But I'm granting all the time that Hesperus is in fact phosphorus. Well, I mean, I'm free to do that, and it could even be useful to do that sometimes, but I want to say that's not a genuine counterfactual scenario description. And, and it's not because because why? Well, I mean, it, the notion has, it has something of the flavour of the notion of possibility that I'm kind of trying to analyse here, the, the, the notion of possibility that relates to the notion of necessity that I'm trying to analyse. But... So, I mean, in a sense, you might want to say, well, look, given that Hesperus is phosphorus, it's just not possible possible for it to be distinct. Um, but uh, I think that there, the, the issue of whether a counterfactual scenario is genuine or not, that's not just smuggling in the notion of possibility um, because, uh, because it's one thing is that I, I maintain that we can tell whether a, a, a putative counterfactual scenario description is genuine or not. I think we can tell the difference um, a priori by thinking about the meanings of words. So when we rule that one out, it's, it's because it doesn't make sense in a, in a certain way. Um, I don't want to say that's a general principle I hold, but it's sort of like we can see there's something wrong with that to say that Hesperus is phosphorus, but suppose it hadn't been. 
it's sort of we're breaking we're breaking something when we do that. Um, we're, we're stepping outside the bounds of genuine counterfactual scenario descriptions. But that's not the same as we're saying something impossible because it all depends on what we take to be true in the first place. Like I could take some identity, like a false identity statement to be true. Um, you know, like this person is in fact this other person when it's not true. And then I could hold that true and produce perfectly genuine counterfactual scenario descriptions according to which they are the same person, even though that's impossible. So it's sort of like, it's kind of like the notion of possibility, but it's not um, because it has a different extension and we can, we can, it's a priori tractable. So it, that's why it's a, a separate factor that I want to tease out from the question of well, what claims are in fact true. Hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the, you know, sorts of claims about, you know, I, I, you know, identities in uh, philosophy of mind, for example, you know, um, and uh, the idea that in order to, that if you, I mean, how do you, I, I, we, you don't really get into this too much in the book. So maybe I'm, I'm going a bit beyond what you want to say, but um, uh, how about, you know, the identity is not, you meant water equals H2O, but that, you know, some, you know, brain state is identical to some, my, you know, mental state or whatever. Um, and that therefore, you know, if that is in fact, if that is true, then it's necessarily true. And a lot of people would, would object to that. Uh, so how do you handle that kind of case? Yeah, I mean, the people who are the objectors you have in mind, I mean, I would like to know, do they think it's true, but not necessarily true? Or, or are they just objecting to the identity in the first place, right? Because if it's the latter, then um, that's sort of fine with me. Like it's, I guess I might have a, it might be a problem if they think, oh, well, this, you know, pain is, is actually this physiological state. Uh-huh. Um but that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess, but yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, I, I, I guess I don't, my, I don't have a view about it, but I don't accept those identities. So I haven't taken them as uh, sort of data as like, oh, these, these are examples of necessary truths. I have to, to be able to uh, reflect their necessity in my framework. It's, but um. I would hope that any coherent view about them, you could sort of then that would play nicely with with my framework. But but having said that, a, a real tricky case, which which is a problem for me, I would say in a way, um, is comes about when you think about yeah, is it possible for there to be a being physically just like us but not conscious? That's a weird one. And then there are other weird ones like when. Like with a lot of what Kripke's talking about, it's sort of like there's this underlying, we sort of take it for granted that there are lots of different possibilities. And the issue is all about, in a way, the issue is kind of how to describe them. Like we can picture all these ways the world could have been. Oh, is that, would that count as a world where Hesperus was distinct from Phosphorus? No, it wouldn't. And, and you can establish a lot by thinking about that, thinking about cases like that. It's sort of like how do names and natural kind terms relate to the other qualitative vocabulary? That's sort of the game that gets played with these Kripkin examples, but then, and when you're doing that, you can just sort of presuppose that there are a bunch of bunch of possibilities that can be described in qualitative terms. 
But then when you when you start to look at other questions, modal questions, like could there have been just one atom in the universe or could there have been nothing? Uh, then it's not clear uh, how you it's not it's not clear uh, what the answers are to those questions or how we get to them. Um, and I think that also happens with the in a special way with the the zombie case, the consciousness case. Um, and I think and that's that's what takes me into that's what I, I think I think a lot of those cases I, I say, well, the modal notions I'm able to analyze, we can say that a lot of these things are possible because sort of like because our concepts permit us to make these representations. But you want to, then you start to feel like, yeah, but is that really possible? <laughs> you know, like we, maybe there are configurations of our concepts, our sort of representational apparatus, but the world couldn't be configured that way. Um, and that's where I start to say, well, here we're getting into the strongly metaphysical modal notions, and I, I develop a, a skeptical story about them. Right. Well, I mean, speaking of concepts, I suppose, and you mentioned before descriptions, um, uh, you you give a, a sort of a neo-Fregian use theory, or or partly externalist and and partly internalist. Um, so can you, can you explain a bit about your, um, analysis of, of meaning and the role it's playing in the broader project? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's high time we got to that, I reckon. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so I've, I've given at least maybe hopefully a flavor about these, these factorizations. And of course, yeah, I mean, you, you'd need to spell them out properly. That's in the book. And then, but there is this broad question where, where I'm saying, well, look, we tell the difference between a genuine counterfactual scenario description and a non-genuine one by reflecting on the meanings of the words involved. And so that, to, to make good on that, especially when you're dealing with these examples involving names, well, that whole idea is threatened by certain developments in the philosophy of language, um, which might make that look impossible. Right? So... The million idea, for example, like all there is to the meaning of a name is the thing it refers to, the thing that bears that name. If things, so that's just one central pillar of what I think of as a broader tendency in the philosophy of language to just kind of think of linguistic meaning as naming or on the model of naming. Um, as a and so that you might call that sort of a Russellian, uh, uh, you know, an and a resilient conception of meaning and that's not gonna that that's not gonna innate that's not if you have that conception then, then what i'm saying looks really implausible so i need to um i need to develop uh the idea that there's more to the meaning of terms than the things out there that they that they are about um and then it's that internal factor that sort of contains the material if you like that we're reflecting on when we when we figure these things out like oh that's that's necessarily true and that's contingently true um, good okay um yeah because um well keep keep going you know because because i mean this kind of gets to what i found to be one of the most you know one of the more com most important parts was what you call your doctrine of flexible granularity um, but I didn't want to, so the internalist bit is a use, you know, a sort of a 
Wittgensteinian use internalist view, right? Um, in, was, I mean, I was just thinking sort of senses or something as well as, re- sense as well as reference, I mean, essentially, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, we can stick with this example of Hesperus is Phosphorus. So, I mean, for that, for, for my story about that to, to be a good one, I need to say, well, there's, there's more to the meaning of those two different names than just they refer to Venus. Um, and so... You know, and this this is Frege's famous move of positing a layer of meaning over and above reference. So he calls it sense. He says, well, look, Hesperus is Hesperus. That's trivial. That's a priori. Hesperus is phosphorus. That's not trivial. That's a substantial bit of knowledge. And what makes the difference? Well, the sentences mean different things. It's very natural to trace that to the a difference in the meanings of the names, although more recently people like Kit Fine have tried to avoid that. But looks like that difference in meaning at the sentence level uh, comes from a difference in meaning at the name level. And so Frege famously says, well, look, Hesperus and Phosphorus, they have the same reference, but they don't have the same sense. Um, however, I want, I want to have that, that sort of difference-making um, ability to say they mean different things, but I don't want to embrace a form of descriptivism or a form of Frigeanism that, was refuted by Kripke. Um, so that that basic move of positing that I, I'm on board with that and think it's it's incredibly compelling. And I, I, I think, you know, people have gone, people have been driven back from that um, by Kripke's arguments against a certain approach to thinking about sense, thinking about this as like a description. And that's, you know, we there are famous arguments against that, which perhaps we shouldn't, get into for time reasons and so i still want to have that that move but i don't want to think of that extra layer of meaning as something like a description that names are synonymous with descriptions you don't need to have that to say that the names differ in meaning and so what i i like to say is that they uh they're used differently i mean that's that's clearly true right i mean it's not it's sort of i think we do hey um uh, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, if you're, you know, essentially, if you're, you know, you're, you're kind of factoring Kripke uh, into there's this, the necessary a posteriori part, which is, you know, you're, you're defending. And on the other hand, in the very same book, of course, as everybody knows, he's, he's also defending this doctrine about meaning, which you are denying. And, yeah, and so you're I saying these two things, yeah. So these two things can just be like they're independent theses. Yeah, like I mean, Kripke he sort of doesn't fully commit himself to millionism, but yeah, he flirts with it. Like, and yeah, and so I just think that's wrong. I think it's 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 hard to, and and I think part of what makes it so hard to maintain the idea that uh, there is this layer of meaning over and above reference is that it sort of seems to sort of be quite shifty it seems to slip out from under you like one person's informative identity might for another person be quite trivial and they might treat those names quite interchangeably so sort of we're not i think the problem is we're not the 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 kind of meaning in 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 which they differ is not like a public public meaning that you have to have mastered to be a competent user of the term or anything like that it's much more um 
I guess it could be much more at the level of idiolect. It could be much more fine grained. Um, and that, and to, to really make sense of that, I mean, so you can say, well, look, there are different ways of using expressions and, or they play different roles in our thinking and talking. And so Hesperus plays one role and Phosphorus plays another, or for Lois Lane, Clark Kent plays one role in her thinking and speaking. Superman, the name Superman plays another role. This is all fine. And it's sort of good enough. But then there are other problems like Kripke's puzzle about belief where you start to want to say two different things because you start to want to say, well, in one sense, these two terms mean the same thing, but in another sense, they don't. Um, And then it it starts to look like the whole thing is disintegrating, this whole idea of the ways of using expressions. How do you individuate them? How do you tell when two expressions are being used in the same way versus two different ways? And that's where my doctrine of flexible granularity comes in. And I think this has been, its the time has come for this. There's been recognition for decades. It's in Putnam. He says things like, oh, Wittgenstein and Quine have savaged the idea that there's a context-independent answer to the question, do these expressions have the same meaning? Um, but when he puts it like that, it just seems like a kind of anti-theoretical stance. And so it just kind of languishes. But in more recent philosophy of language, people have been taking this more seriously and developing technical models of it. Um, and so I think I think it's just time to take that really seriously and say um, these things can be individuated at different granularities. And I think if you think in terms of ways, uh, that's very natural. So it's not just ways of using expressions. Think about ways of dancing, for example. If you imagine someone at a ceremony dancing in a certain way and then you attend a ceremony a few years later and they're dancing similarly, you know, one person watching the second performance might say, oh, they're dancing in just the same way as they were at the last one. And that might be correct. And another person who's a bit more in the know, a bit more um, interested in the details of these dances might notice some systematic differences and say, oh, well, they're dancing in a different way. They're flicking their wrists a little bit. This, you know, when when they do this move, they're dancing in a different way this time. Um, but they're both they're both correct because the second person is individuating ways of dancing at a finer granularity than the first person is. Does that sound plausible to you? Uh, well, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I guess I'm just trying to put together, you know, all these different ideas. Um, uh, so, hmm. I mean, so to go back to the Hesperus equals phosphorus, he's identical to phosphorus. I mean, the reason why it's necessary is because they are in fact just one on the same planet or yeah, planet Venus, right? Um, and so it's the reference, it's the identity of reference that does the work in making the claim necessary, even if it's a posteriori. Right. But I guess part of what makes it the claim that it is, is that it's got these two different names. Because after all, Hesperus is Hesperus. That's a different claim. And we would say that that's a priori. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a problem for Kripke too. You know, people have noticed that, that he, he, he says that this is, a, this is a central example of the necessary a posteriori. But some people have said, hold on, if you take the millionism thing really seriously, isn't there just one proposition here? Hesperus is Hesperus slash Hesperus is Phosphorus. How could it matter which name you use? So either they're both a priori or they're both a posteriori. 
I don't want to go along with that. I need to be able to tell them apart. So that's one concern. And the other is just I need to say, well, what on earth are we thinking about when we when we figure out this stuff? Like, oh, well, this is a, a counterfactual invariance decider for that. You know, there's no, you can't, it's not a genuine counterfactual scenario description to talk about Hesperus being distinct from phosphorus, given that they are identical. What are we thinking about when we, when we realise those things? What, I, I maintain it's linguistic meaning, but I need to tell a story about linguistic meaning which is compatible with that. And that's why I talk about ways of using expressions. And then I, I defend that by saying, oh, look, you can use it to solve Frege's puzzle. You can, And then once you allow for the granularity stuff, you can say uh, things about other puzzles in, in philosophy of language. Okay, okay. So just how flexible? I mean, you said they're used differently. Um, yeah, so this was something I wanted to get into a bit. Uh, just just how, I mean, used by who? By a particular linguistic community, a particular person. I mean, you mentioned idiolects. Um, so how fine-grained or coarse-grained, for that matter, um, you know, are you are you talking about in terms of uh, the use, right, and 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 the flexibility of the granularity? Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, like, in a way, uh, I mean, one, I want to be clear that it's not it's not a kind of anti realism. My picture is rather that we do operate at different granularities. So it's not like you can just say whatever you like. It's like if you're operating at a coarser granularity, then certain things you say are going to be true and certain things you're going to say are going to be false. Um, and what the limits are, yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, I think there's a sense in which you can talk about ways of using expressions that get in a way that gets very coarse grained where you would, but I would say that that's not constitutive, fully constitutive of internal meaning. For example, you might say, well, you know, there are different ways of using sentences. You can use them to state, make claims. You can use them to uh, ask questions. There's, you know, there's the question way of using sentences. There's the statement way of using them. But we would never say all question sentences mean the same thing or all statement sentences mean the same thing. So I think there's a, there's a flexibility in way talk, ways of using expressions that goes beyond um, when, when I want to say, well, there are also these things, internal meanings of expressions, and they are constituted by the way those expressions are used. There's less flexibility there because it just doesn't sound right to say, you know, all names mean the same thing just because they're being used as names. Um, and I think in terms of statements, I, I think normally we would, we would one constraint would be that uh, – if one instance of a sentence is true and the other one's false, um, they don't mean the same. Uh, so maybe there's an external difference or if there's no external difference, then they must be being used with the same um, internal meaning. But then I think if you relax that, then you get uh, you, you get to say things that sound relativist. Like in aesthetics or religion, people often say things like, well, that's true for you but not true for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, can, I mean, whether that's proper or not, is another issue, but I think I can make sense of that by saying, well, look, they're kind of, they're, they're individuating the meanings of sentences so coarsely that, um, that it could be true in one case and false in another, but so sort of like it's a proposition like thing they're talking about, but it's individuated in such a way that some, some cases are true and some are false. But if we, if we're not doing that 
then then we're not doing that. And and so I think I think it I, th- I think on the other end in terms of there are limits on the other end as well. Like you, some differences, if you just are in a different mood when you say so, or you say it in a in a different room in your house, that's that doesn't mean that you're using it in a different <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, you're saying that, but you know, why not? Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I guess I think, uh, my attitude here is like, well, we have this talk already, like we have this notion of ways of using expressions and we just have to sort of, um, learn to keep our nerve about it and see that it's okay um, and not get confused into thinking that it's not legitimate or something like that. And then there there will be lots of questions about uh, particular cases or whether this is the right thing to say or whether we whether the notion extends that far. And yeah, maybe maybe people could just maybe people could have more kind of fire out views. But like you know example an example I give in the book is like no matter like no matter how fine grained you're being, a certain set theory symbol occurring in a mathematical proof, like the membership symbol, if that is, occurs once and then occurs later down the page, there's just, you know, it just doesn't seem like you could make any case for them being used in two different ways. But that's just an intuitive judgment at the end of the day. And I, I don't I don't really think I need to take a, any strong stance. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I think the the worry that I have in the in in like somewhere in the back of my head is that um, uh, that the necessary a posteriori the 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 claims that we agree that you know if such and such is true that it's necessarily true uh, are somehow going to be um, uh, indexed or. Uh, you know, limited, implicit, they have a limit, there's a scope limitation of some sort, you know, for us or for me uh, or me now or something like that. So if it's, you know, true for some group for whatever at a time, you know, that is necessarily true for that group at that time. Yeah. No, I think that's... I don't think you want to go there. Oh yeah, I mean I don't know. Like, <laughs> I mean I guess to yeah, in setting up, because there are I kind of in this conversation I was just very uh, complacent about the Kripkean examples. I was just kind of taking them as data and like, oh, we all agree that this is necessarily true, right? Where in fact there's not agreement about that, especially with cases like water is H two O, and and I think these cases raise empirical linguistic questions. You know, does the word water get used in the way that sort of Kripke and Putnam had in mind? Um, maybe not always, maybe never, I don't know. Like, So I, I do want to allow for that. Um, and so I'm very happy with the idea that sentences like water is H2O get, and cats are animals get used um, in all kinds of different ways um, and often well, they might not be necessarily true. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea is, you know, water – you know, for, you know, maybe that's not the best example, but it's, it's a, you know, available one is, you know, the way scientists, you know, whatever, use the term water may just not, you know, may have all kinds of vague boundaries in terms of what's possible, what's not possible. Um, 
uh, and uh, it's it's just not, you know, the meaning is just not determinate enough for us to make any sort of judgment about, you know, what's possible, what's not possible. You know, so it's so it's like you have to you have to freeze the meaning at a certain, you know, in a certain way, which which Kripke does take for granted, uh, although I'm not sure it's justified. And then, you know, once you've kind of have this uh, view of language as 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 very static, essentially, rather than a dynamic thing itself, you know, then maybe you can get some sort of a you know, necessity. Yeah. yeah going, no, this is... but, but it depends on a very false view of, of language. Yeah. I, 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 I hear what you're saying. And I, I know people have worries like this and sometimes they're, sometimes they're, sometimes they're right to worry. But I, I also think that there can be a misunderstanding here where um, you can, you can make certain abstractions and idealizations and study certain phenomena. And in, when you do that, you're not denying, like, I don't mean to deny the, uh, the, the, the many ways in which people use words like water. Um, my kind of entry point is like, well, regardless of the empirical facts, once I read this story from people like Putnam and Kripke, I can see a way that the word water could be used where you would get necessary a posteriori truths and that are clear, clear cases of necessity as well. And then I sort of grab that with both hands and try to run off and try to make sense of it with, with some accounts. But it doesn't mean that I'm wanting to be dogmatic about the, the meaning of actual living, breathing tokens of these sentences. They could be used in a bunch of ways and sometimes it might, might not be clear what to say about how they're being used. Um, and also the idea of the boundary between necessary and contingent. I've been deliberately picking clear cases, um, but I think there are unclear cases as well. And I think Kripke gets into them with, and then says things that seem very objectionable when he says things like, well, I could not have come from a different sperm and egg than the one I actually did come from. I don't know. Like I don't, I, I don't feel inclined to agree with that. And, and so I think, you know, Saul Kripke is not a number. That's necessarily true. That's a clear case. Um, you know, Saul Kripke was male. It's not clear. I mean, maybe, maybe that one's not necessarily true. He, that he, he's, he was a human. Is that necessarily true? I think there are unclear cases. Um, and I think that I'm much more okay with that, partly because I'm a skeptic about what I call strongly metaphysical modality at the end of the day. Um, I think if people think differently, have a more metaphysical have if they want certain things from the notion of necessity uh they might think how could it possibly be vague you know like whether the world could have been a certain way or not just doesn't seem like it, it should be a vague thing but I'm, I'm happy with there being very unclear cases i'm happy with the notion of necessity being vague so let's i, I think we have time for one question and and that's that was the one about uh your skepticism about strongly metaphysical necessity. I mean, uh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time, but you know, if you want to say a, a final word about that, that bit at the end. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'll try not to, I won't be too ambitious in trying to summarize because this is a really difficult bit of the project. And it was sort of something that was not done for a long time in my thinking, like, uh, 
with, with my PhD thesis, there, that, that bit wasn't there. It was just like my account was just kind of dodgy when you looked at certain examples. And I really had to reckon with that. <laughs> and that's just what, that's what led to the, the final two chapters of the book. And I've seen that happening with people with related projects where they have these cases, like I mentioned Chalmers before, they have these cases and it's like, uh, you know, could be a problem. How do you, it just doesn't seem right. Some of these proposals just don't seem right for these cases. And that, that led me to, to start thinking very seriously about what, what do we want from these notions? Um, and I, I think there's something funny that happens in philosophers' minds where they uh, they almost want the world from <laughs> from these notions, uh, uh, colloquially speaking. Like like you know that the, they're supposed to be so fundamental and important uh, that that in a way becomes constitutive of of the notions. And then and another thing which which always bothered me was that some people are just sort of in a in an unclear way or to me an unclear way not on board with the concept of metaphysical necessity so so I, you know i read naming necessity and thought, oh, what, what an interesting concept necessity versus contingency and then there are some people who are sort of skeptical about metaphysical modality but you know they just it's not a claim it's a concept what does it mean to be skeptical of a concept that's actually not so clear um and so, yeah, perhaps suffice to say, I develop, I try to develop an idea where you, we can be sceptical, we can recognise that there are these notions, the strongly metaphysical modal notions, but we can be still sceptical about them. And I think that roughly it's the idea that it's constitutive of these notions that they're supposed to be really important and fundamental, but they don't actually live up to it or something like that. That's very roughly the, the, the scepticism that I defend. Okay. Well, um I mean, I, we are, we are out of time. I, and I should say, I mean, this has been a, it's been a, uh, it's, it's a complicated topic. It's hard to talk about. So I, you know, I do appreciate your, your, you know, taking the time and, and the, I said the book itself is very readable. So, um, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever mistakes I'm making here, uh, you, oh, yeah. you do clarify things in the, in the book very, very nicely. Um, oh, but, no, it is. So, it's very uh, hard to talk about. It is. I, I mean, I just hope this conversation, it hopefully wasn't complete nonsense. And I just hope that it, someone wants to read the book after having heard <laughs> it. Really. Yeah. So what's, what's on the, on the, are you working on a follow-up or just turn to some other subject at this point? What's, what's on your yeah desk at the moment yeah well yeah there are definitely questions that are arising out of this thicket of ideas um and i've sort of put them on hold a little bit while i see how the book does i suppose is, is mm-hmm. there any point thinking more about this or or was the whole project a disaster you know we that maybe i'll wait a, a year or two and see but, uh, <laughs> but so i've turned to other things at the moment i've got i guess two two main projects one in in logic i'm doing developing uh, a logic of adverbs trying to add adverbs to logical languages and then there's a broader ph- philosophical concern there which is with perspicuous representation in logic and wanting different kinds of formulas to um, represent different kinds of arguments. So there's some stuff I'm doing there. And another strand that I'm pursuing is uh, thinking really hard, trying to think really hard about um, Platonism and the idea that numbers exist and the idea that, well, how do we know about these abstract objects if we don't interact with them? 
that seems to really bother people. And I'm trying to think hard about exactly why that bothers people. Um, and I, yeah, I have, I have, I have some fledgling ideas around that that are a bit, uh, that ho- hopefully, are a bit refreshing in terms of trying to. Because I think some of the some of those discussions, there's some some weird stuff, almost psychological stuff going on at the heart of it, which doesn't get picked up on sometimes if these are treated as dry technical issues to be solved almost with mathematical methods or something like that. So that's a couple of projects I'm I'm doing anyway. Good. Well, um, we are out of time, so I do want to thank you again for. Uh, for speaking with us about your about your new book, and oh, thank you so you much luck. for having me. Yeah, good luck with the new with the new projects and and uh, yeah and yeah, have fun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. All the best. Uh-huh. So, bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tristan Grudvert Hayes, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. We've been talking about his new book, Meaning and Metaphysical Necessity, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and thank you again for listening.